This is The Guardian. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't right <laughs> Hold now. it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Science Weekly is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scienceweekly. Twenty twenty three proved a busy year for us on the science desk, from a weight loss drug that took Hollywood by storm. The drug is semaglutide, often known as Wagovi, an appetite suppressant popular with celebrities like Elon Musk and Kim Kardashian. To record temperatures and extreme weather events engulfing the planet. European scientists have said that 2023 left the records tumbling like dominoes, confirming it was the hottest year ever recorded. And even some more unexpected stories. Orca uprising, anyone? Orcas off the coast of Spain and Portugal have been body slamming boats, chewing off their rudders, spawning speculation that the orcas might be out for revenge against humans. So what can we look forward to this year? Where could we see game-changing breakthroughs? And what questions and challenges will new discoveries bring? I'm The Guardian science editor, Ian Sample, and today on Science Weekly, we're taking a look at the stories we could all be talking about in 2024. To help make the predictions for 2024, I'm joined by science correspondent Hannah Devlin. And if memory serves, you did a great job last year. So 
let's start with some of the things we know are scheduled for the year ahead. 2024 is shaping up to be a sort of year of the moon with more than 10 missions heading there. Is this a new era of moon activity? Yeah, I think there's been this real sort of ramping up of interest in the moon from a range of different countries. So, you know, NASA is obviously the one we hear about most, but also from China, India. And I think there's both the scientific interest, but then there's also this kind of ambition to be able to send humans into space and establish a long-term presence in space. And then also there's the economic element. So there's a sort of growing interest in the resources that could be held on the moon and the possibility of mining for things like rare earth elements. You know, it's sometimes being framed as a race to get back to the moon and start taking advantage of both the scientific but also the possible economic possibilities out there. Well, the race so far hasn't got off to a great start. We had a launch on Monday from Cape Canaveral and that was the first under the new NASA Commercial Lunar Payload Services Scheme. Luckily, it's called CLIPS for short. And this is where, instead of NASA doing everything, they basically pay a private company to ferry instruments to the moon. Now, the Monday launch was of something called the Peregrine Lunar Lander, and it it went up perfectly, but the probe couldn't find a way to orient itself so that its solar panels pointed towards the sun, and so that meant it couldn't start charging its batteries. So the thinking at the moment is that that mission is actually lost. Now, there is another launch coming up under that same CLIP scheme that NASA's running. That's going to launch on a SpaceX rocket in mid-Feb and land by the end of February. So we may still get back on track, but We've also heard from NASA that they're going to delay the Artemis II mission. And that was one that we were all getting pretty excited about because this was their mission to send a crew of four astronauts around the moon. They weren't going to go for a touchdown, but they were going to actually fling them out around the moon and bring them back. That was due to happen late this year, but NASA have just announced that they're going to push that back to 2025. It's not all about NASA, though, and it's very easy to focus on them because they're so big and so active. But we should be really aware that Japan are going for their first moon landing on the 19th of January. And if Japan pull off this landing in January, they'll only be the fifth nation to do so. And another one just worth flagging is China, who've been going great guns on the moon, really showing everyone else how it's done, I'd say. They have another moon mission this year, Chang'e 6. And that's their second mission to try and return lunar samples to Earth. And those will be from the far side of the moon. And that's due to go up in May. So fingers crossed for them because they've got a got a great record so far. And with you, you, there's so many countries and different nations and space agencies now sort of targeting the moon and, you know, maybe in, in some cases even competing to be the first agency to put a lander in a certain area. And there's this question of resources as well. I'm wondering, what's the status of what you're allowed to do on the moon? Can you just start digging and looking for stuff? Are there kind of um, international agreements over what's okay to do on the moon and what's not? This is a huge issue. And basically, at the moment, it's a free-for-all. You can do what you like. But there are absolutely scientists who are raising the flag and lobbying for international organizations to thrash some sort of agreement out. Now, you know, there's always a question of, well, who's going to sign up to this? Are you going to get China, the US and Russia all to sign the same document and all to agree by the same rules? But at the moment, we don't even have a body that will 
take on the responsibility of saying, okay, how do we decide which sites to protect and which sites not to? So it's, it's, a, it's a huge question at the moment. Let's move on to health, shall we? What are you keeping your eye on in that area this year? Yeah, so I think one of the big things this year, it's a really big growth area, is brain-computer interfaces. So there's a few companies now. The one that's probably had the most publicity is Neuralink, Elon Musk's company, which has got approval to do a trial of a brain-computer interface in paralysed patients. But there are also a couple of other companies, BlackRock and Synchron, that have already had trials underway for a while. And most of these are in paraplegics and people who are paralysed. And the idea is that electrodes are placed on the surface of the brain or just into the brain and that the signals from the brain are read out directly to a computer, which can either, I mean, normally can be used to control either just a cursor on the computer screen to communicate or even an artificial limb maybe in the future. And I think another strand of it is this idea that you could use brain-computer interfaces to restore communication to people who've lost speech. And some of that advance has come through AI and large language models, which have made it much easier to read out the kind of complex signals that are going on in your brain when you think of a sentence, to be able to sort of extract the meaning of what you're thinking and, and put it into words. And th there were some really impressive results in the last year on that topic. But it was more kind of people lying in scanners and a more sort of experimental level. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether some of that makes its way into clinic and probably not large trials at this point, but maybe testing these things out in one or two patients perhaps and, and seeing how effective these things are. I think another bit of health tech that seems extremely sci-fi to me is is this whole world of artificial wombs. Are, are we really going to be seeing progress on that front this year? So yeah, it was just in autumn that we found out that researchers at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania were seeking approval for the first human clinical trials of an artificial womb device that they've developed. And it's actually a story that I remember from the same team about five years ago where they were uh, unveiling results of the uh, similar device um, that they'd been testing out in lambs that had been born prematurely. Um, and so it's quite exciting to see that they've now got to the point of seeking approval for clinical trials. And I think the idea is that this artificial womb would basically act as a kind of bridge between the mother's womb and the outside world. So instead of being born and put in an incubator, they'd be put in this fluid-filled sack where they're getting oxygen through the umbilical cord rather than being ventilated. Still can't help just thinking of Keanu Reeves in The Matrix when I think <laughs> about these artificial wounds, but I know I need to uh, need to update my my sort of uh, my, my my thinking on that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to say, I don't think there's any prospect of this kind of replacing pregnancy. There's no ambition for this to act as a kind of alternative to having kind of conventional pregnancy. Scientists are predicting that 2024 will be the first year the planet exceeds 1.5 degrees of global heating, a significant moment in the unfolding climate crisis. But to find out what other big environment stories we might be hearing about over the next 12 months, I called on a colleague. 
Hi, I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm a nature reporter with The Guardian, and these are my top three stories to watch for 2024. Let's start with the good news, rainforests. When I think of this subject, I think of the Amazon being destroyed, Congo Basin rainforest disappearing, beautiful areas of Indonesia being converted into palm oil. Well, in 2024, we might finally get news that that is beginning to slow dramatically around the world. Preliminary data from 2023 in the Amazon, at least, is showing that there have been big falls in deforestation. We've seen very steep declines in Indonesia in recent years, in Malaysia, and there's really a moment of opportunity to protect the world's rainforests now that we could seize this year. My second big story for 2024 is the potential return of Donald Trump. What happens if he comes back? And there are lots of implications for defence, for geopolitics, for the economy, but it's a huge issue for the environment. Last time when Trump was in power, he withdrew the US from the Paris Agreement and that would change everything if it happened again. He doesn't really seem to care about these issues at all. That is the spectre that is is haunting these processes, right? That, that are trying to bring the world together to, to tackle climate change and biodiversity loss and, and these issues. And if America's not at the table, if America continues to invest in, in fossil fuels in a huge way, that will be a big problem. My final big story for 2024 is the energy transition and what that's going to mean for the natural world. Regardless of what happens with President Trump returning or, or anything like that, many countries really are getting on with this transition, including China and parts of the EU and Canada, and they all need new materials or rare materials to build the cars, build the wind turbines, make the technological transformations that we need to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. Now, what's going to happen as a result, I guess, and it is already happening, is is we're going to start mining and entering new areas of the planet to find lithium, cobalt, nickel, copper. And we'll start to see, I think, climate goals and biodiversity goals rubbing up against each other here. And there's, there's, there's a real friction on this subject putting the geopolitics aside and I think that's a really interesting thing to watch in, in 2024. Hannah, we heard Patrick Greenfield there talk about the US election and looks like we're facing an election in the UK this year as well. These elections are going to spark a lot of conversations about AI and disinformation. Yeah, I think that's true. So we've got, I mean, it's a really big election year, in, as I said, in the US and the UK, and then also EU and India. So, you know, it's a sort of big proportion of the world really that are going to be voting. And although we've already seen the potential for, you know, tech and social media to sway people on elections, we've had things like Cambridge Analytica, I think possibly what's changed is chat GPT and the ability of using AI to generate content as well as just reaching a, a wider group of people or amplifying existing content. And you can do this at scale. So you can have millions of fake bots potentially on Facebook, Twitter, writing this stuff, sending it out, and it being almost indistinguishable from real content. And then, you know, also there's been discussions about the potential for video and audio deep fakes. You know, these are not going to be things that are impossible to verify. We've still got journalists who have the same skills that, you know, you use to verify information. But then what can happen is it can go viral and it's 
not everyone is going to see that analysis of whether it's fake or not. And sometimes these things might, might just stick in someone's mind and they'll maybe just think afterwards, oh, wasn't that that, that thing about, about them? So I think, yeah, it is going to be a really big issue. But there are also some really exciting things on the horizon when it comes to tech and AI. And some of these will only be made possible when you, you sort of scale up. And I know that there's a big new computer called Jupiter. Ian, what's that all about? Yeah, so Europe is due to get its first exascale computer. Now, what does that mean? Well, an exascale computer is one that can do a billion, billion operations every second. So immensely powerful, and they'll obviously be using it to crunch all sorts of problems. I mean, there are officially only two others in the world. Both of those operated at US government labs. There are thought to be two others in China as well. Jupiter is going to be built in Germany. And the idea for that computer is to be, it's going to be used for all sorts of things, but chiefly you can use it to do more accurate Earth systems modeling and climate modeling. If you think how complex the climate is, if you can start producing more accurate models of that kind of thing, it helps you with working out, okay, where's going to be most affected, where are your risks highest and lowest, and how do those risks change over time? You can also use that kind of computing to look at designing new materials and how materials behave on the kind of nanoscale, the sort of atomic and molecular scale. So really getting into the the real guts of the physics of, of new materials, which I think is actually going to be way more powerful than it sounds, as in way more useful. And other things you can do are the sort of calculations you will need if we're ever going to get fusion power plants up and running. So that kind of computing is absolutely the cutting edge, the most powerful we can do on the planet at the moment. And Europe getting hold of one of those, building one of those is going to be a great thing. Now, it's interesting that they'll be using that for climate models because, you know, the electricity bill alone for this thing is 100 million euros a year. So there you go. That's that's how it is. Well, thanks, Hannah, for your predictions for this year. We've got a next 12 months to see if they all pan out. And um, yeah, fingers crossed. Let's hope they do. A big thanks to Hannah Devlin and to Patrick Greenfield. You can keep up to date on all the biggest stories in science on theguardian.com. I'd also really recommend having a look at our range of newsletters to get everything you need to know straight into your inbox, including Techscape, a deeper look at how technology is shaping our lives, and Down to Earth, the week's most important environment news. Just go to theguardian.com forward slash email dash newsletters. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Madeline Finley. It was sound designed by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.